Hey y'all, this week on the Movie Morgue, we are covering the 1958 classic film, The Vikings. Now, a major part of the story in this film centers around sexual assault, and we talk about that during this episode. If that's something that makes you feel uncomfortable, please feel free to skip over this episode. We'll catch up with you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, and the rest of you lovely lot, welcome to the Movie Morgue, the movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. And today with us is a new friend and guest. Say hi. Hi. I'm Steven. <laughs> nice to meet y'all. Hey, Steven. Glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah. So, really uh, glad Steven. Absolutely. So, Steven, um, you, we, reached out to, we reached out open call for guests, and you came in and you said you wanted to do The Vikings, the 1958 Richard Fleischer film. So, please, tell yeah. me, why did you choose this movie? What is this that you are so excited to talk about? Oh, man. It's just... I'm a big fan of classic movies, honestly. Um, I grew up watching them with my fa- with my parents, with my mom and my dad. Um, and this has this is a really important part in my personal life. Uh, after leaving graduate school after a year, um, I came back home, and I remember this is one of the like first real close bonding moments I had with my dad watching this movie. After that point, that I can personally remember. Awesome. So I really wanted to bring this and. I just, I think it's a great example of, like, late 50s film. Yeah, I, 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 I can agree with that. Cool. Um, because, like, I had never heard of this movie before, but Annie, you were actually really excited to do this one, too, once I brought it up. I was very excited. Um, you know that I love classic movies. I wanted to do something that's a little bit older, older, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Pre-1980. For a while, I... Pre-1980, I also grew up on um, classic films. I'm a huge cinephile, as well as obviously being a historian, so just a massive nerd. And I've seen this movie a couple times, but I haven't really watched it as intensively as I did this time. And it's from one of my favorite periods in history. It's from the period of the House Un-American Affairs Committee, where a whole bunch of actors got blacklisted for being communists and a bunch of other things. So This is a great preview yeah. of things to come. <laughs> but Doc, you have never seen this before? No, um, I have a very limited context for classic films outside of specific genre studies. Um, like I've got a bit of a backing in noir, for example, because I took some classes on it. But um, because I didn't grow up in the States, so I didn't have access to things like, you know, Turner Classic Movies or TNT or anything like that back in the day. Uh, we did have Turner Classic Movies for about AMC. a year, and then they cut that out because no one in Thailand was watching it. So it wasn't making them money. And uh, wow. yeah, no. So I came into this blind. And um, what I will say is I didn't watch any trailers or anything for this. Um, so... I, I didn't have much in the way of expectations, but uh, from what little I did see, like, I was at least hoping to get something kind of, like, it's weird to say classic-y, but classic-y, and I, th- I think we got that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It, it feels very much like Jason and the Argonauts in many ways. <laughs> Minus Ray Harryhausen's genius, but yeah. But we'll get into that later, I'm sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely had that feel with the color, though. Absolutely. 
And uh, just to clarify, just to clarify and show my lack of knowledge of classic cinema, Tony Curtis and Todd Armstrong are no, not the same person. No, they're not the same person. No, no. No, um, they're two different people. <laughs> Tony Curtis was a major heartthrob in Hollywood during the 1950s who was in a lot of, like, historical romance slash action movies and... Kirk Douglas was as well. He was kind of like the first beefcake star. So Chris Hemsworth had to come from somewhere, y'all. And Kirk Douglas was kind of the first one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Steve, I'd actually like to hear how you'd rate this. Generally, we do this on a letter grade these days. Uh, and this is, to be clear, this is about what the movie is or tries to achieve, not about how much we personally enjoyed it. I love some C movies. It's tough. It's it's hard for me to say. Um, I'm, I don't have a whole lot of a huge film background, you know. Closest I got was a television course in, uh, as, in my undergraduate. But um, honestly, I, I'd put it at um, maybe a C plus, B minus. Maybe even a B. It's it's really hard to tell for me without that background. It's really hard for me to divorce that from the uh, personal feelings that it, that this evokes within me and the yeah, fact that totally. I'm just a sucker for this kind of movie. <laughs> that's a legit. Thing. I mean, that's totally cool. What about you, Annie? I'm also going to rate this uh, a B, B minus, kind of on the line, and that's because of some very particular. Uh, historical context to this movie and like some of the things that it tries to do that were sort of new for this period so i think it does some things that just kind of weren't happening before and so that's why i'm going to give it a b-ish rating how about you doc because i mean you've mainly got like a 21st century perspective on this what okay so this one i i had some conflicting and complicated thoughts about this one mm-hmm. um because i feel like okay as as a strictly modern movie mm-hmm. uh this is maybe like a c oh yeah, yeah. maybe but <laughs> as a given giving it historical context and for where it is i'd like allowing for that i'd say as a modern audience i can give it maybe a b minus but at the time this would be a minus b plus okay i'd say like the most complicated rating I have ever given for the oldest film we've ever yeah. done. So I think that's appropriate. I think that's pretty fair. Um, because there there are a lot of things that I like about this movie. Yeah. And there are a lot of things I don't like about this movie. Yep. But a lot of the things I don't like about this movie are stuff that are not intrinsic parts of the film, but are parts of the, the whole film industry at large back in the day. And yeah. you know, some of the things we haven't even fully recovered from. There's definitely some yeah. cultural attitudes so, like, in there. it's... It's difficult to judge the film on those aspects because there's something that we're endemic to everything. Like that's not to, and but they still detract from my enjoyment of it. So it's it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated is a great way to put this. Um, it is complicated. All forms of representation are problematic in some way, right? 
And today we're looking at a movie that's made in 1958. Uh, so we're going to be looking at some very uh, egregiously chauvinistic and misogynistic behavior in this film. That was a common thing during the period. It's important for us to understand why. So hopefully I can help provide some context today for why we see some of this going on in the movie. And that's not to excuse this behavior. Um, instead, I think of it as a way for us to understand why audiences bought into these narratives at the time and what that's doing. Yeah, because I mean, like, if we want to get right into mechanics, like one of the first things I thought is like Kirk Douglas had a great performance yeah. in this. And you'd really don't want to say that about the guy who's introduced with a attempted uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, which actually, though, that is, in a strange way, part of why he is so compelling. Yeah. Uh, because he starts off as this two-dimensional, really irredeemable character. And over the course of the film, he gains a lot more nuance and yeah. depth. And by the end of it, I, you almost forget how he started. I, I found that very hard to forget, actually. I think it's it, important. It, 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 it to, is. It's so important to the character for where he winds up at the end. Um, I think like he is a horrible person i i took some notes here i remember the first thing i wrote one of the first things i wrote here is very specific kirk douglas is super creepy uh yeah right oh yeah that was also one of the notes that i had in there i have the animation is very yeah. cute and then i have whoa kirk douglas scary man <laughs> so as the historian yeah. what did you think that, of the that's animation um... I mean, it's not really anything compared to, say, like, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed or anything else coming out in the 1950s. Is it, Doc? Yeah. The Adventures of Prince Ahmed was 1929. Right, but what I'm saying is that that predated this by, like, 35-ish years. No, it's, it's very yeah. budget. What's interesting about that is the fact that they're using this simulated imagery of the Bayou yeah. Tapestry. That's... An imp that's an imp that's a good aesthetic choice, but in terms of animation, they're doing absolutely nothing special. Yeah. It's very yeah. budget. It's very boilerplate. But it, it because of the stylistic choices, it's a smart production design mm -hmm. decision. I really like that. That's about all uh, I can say yeah. about the animation. Can we talk about that theme, though? Oh, my God, that theme. The musical theme? Uh, the music is I love that musical this. theme. So, I, as I mentioned, my, this evokes strong feelings of my dad for me with my dad, and... On my way home from work to watch this movie before the coming on, I called my dad and we started doing the theme together. Oh, that's kind of cute. Like over Aww. top of each other. Incredibly out of sync and it was wonderful. Aww. Oh, that, that, that's, that's just lovely. Okay, for those, because I, I think this is going to be one of those movies that I think a lot of people are going to listen to the podcast and not have watched necessarily. Could we have a little preview? Ba -da, da, ba -da, da, ba -da, da 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 I am horrible and I so love much. it. I hope Sorry, you all man. enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We really did. Um, but one, I, the, before we get back to Kirk Douglas, because I don't think no. we were done with that little tangent, and I don't think we will be for the no. rest of the podcast, but... Um, there's a certain, it's weird to try and describe the kind of aesthetics of this soundtrack because it's a lot of horns without being brassy. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. I really like that. As somebody who actually played a brass instrument for a long time. 
I really like it. Yeah. Oh, what, what I did you the play? trumpet. Uh, all through middle school and ah. high school, and then I got braces. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oof, that'll yeah. do it. All those lip then instruments. I put the, for a time, I, at, while I had braces, um, I had had jaw surgery and stuff as a result. So after, when I came back from that and could play again, I played the baritone horn. Oh, wow. Oh. Because, hey, what do you do when your tuba player is running like euphonium? <laughs> Yeah, but um, how how do I say this? Like I I've only seen this yeah. film once, so it's difficult for any of the tracks to jump into my mind. But one thing that I really loved about this film is, like especially in older films compared to modern films, there's a lot more patience in the editing and the cutting and the shooting. And one of the ways that they really get away with that is by putting so much drama into the soundtrack. Yeah. And there is a lot of it. Like, the chapel scenes are very slow and methodical. And there's this wonderful music playing that just, like, it swells. I think that's the best way to describe the soundtrack is there's a lot of swells. There's also a lot of dead air, too, I noticed. There's some very, there was a couple moments that were pretty conspicuously absent. And I really liked that. So let's go back to Kirk Douglas for a moment. Um, Because, Annie, you posted something to the Facebook group. And when I saw that picture, I'm just like, Holy shit, it's Rutger Hauer. Uh, I mean, yeah. Like, you, you just get yeah, that vibe. Yeah, you definitely do get that vibe. Like, it's craggy. His face is kind of, like, wizened almost, which I think is an effect of the black and white. Yeah. Yeah. But um, he's got this very striking face, and it's kind of... Im- it, well, it is important to the plot, because, you know, unlike the rest of the Vikings, he's clean-shaven, he's got a pretty face, and so on. But... Um, Part of his big, like, thematic fall is from being the golden child to becoming, like, this creature of vengeance. And, my God, I love his scar. Yeah, right? His scar is so fucking cool. I think that, was that a contact lens, probably? It was a contact lens. It was extremely painful for him to wear. They could only shoot the scenes, like, a few minutes at a time. Yeah, I remember reading that somewhere as well. It's... Yeah. Yeah. Because when his face first got cut up and I saw the eye patch, I was like, okay, I mean, that's kind of cool. Yeah. It's a big, goofy eye patch, though. And then he comes out with a scar, and I'm just and digging. The and the prosthetics are really amazing for this yeah. period. Like, I was like, okay, you did this on a budget, yeah. and it's the 50s. Not bad, guys. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah, like, I would have accepted these prosthetics today. Yeah. Like, they looked really good. Like, it looked like yeah, scar tissue. We talk a lot in movies about, like, CGI versus practical effects. and Practicals all the way it, it, Yeah, <laughs> and it, it to me, it's a good example of why practical is so much, can do so much more. I'm not really familiar with his work. Like I said, I don't watch a lot of movies from back in that day, which I should yes. fix. We'll, we'll fix this on the podcast. We'll get to this. Um, But one thing is, there's, I think, kind of maybe three elements to Kirk Douglas's performance in this. Uh, one is is this kind of entitled, brash, um, you know, affluenza yeah. kind of kid, <laughs> yeah. basically. Um, then you have the kind of monster of vengeance aspect to him. But there's also a third aspect of kind of grudging respect and being a good Viking that slowly comes up and boils to the surface just long enough to have an honorable yeah. death. And for what seems to be, especially... And this is why, like, I struggle a little bit with, uh, you know, his introduction as a character, is he has so much charisma that he, I don't, like, he almost gets away with it. 
I could see how you could feel that way. I mean, I think the movie wants us to believe that narrative. And I will say, the way that this movie is structured is very much like textbook 1950s anti-hero. So um, Kirk Douglas's character is the prototypical anti-hero from a 50s action movie period he's hyper masculine he's hyper violent he's hyper consumptive and he's hypersexual and he gets sort of balanced out through a another role the female protagonist role um janet lee's role is kind of to play this sort of civilizing christianizing force that women during this period were believed to be so women are thought to be like their role is to contain masculine violence that's their job and uh that plays out pretty obviously throughout the entire film Like, she is constantly having to do all this maintenance work to keep men off her and to contain what they're doing, these different strategies of refusal, all of that stuff. So it's very much a prototypical anti-hero film in terms of that um, male anti-hero, female protagonist type thing. And that comes to us through film noir. You know, like, you've either got the male anti-hero who is led to redemption through a sort of, like, good girl force you know the girl who has faith and is very domestic and all that sort of stuff or he's led to his doom by a femme fatale those are your two choices what i will say is pretty interesting about this movie is that kirk douglas is playing an anti-hero at a time when that is uh (laughs) that's kind of a little bit new for studios so movie studios maintained very very tight grips on their actors images by um you know managing the source of roles that they were allowed to take uh this is where you know like we get a lot of our ideas about typecasting certain actors were not allowed to play heroes certain ones were not allowed to play villains and kirk douglas was sort of transgressing that boundary uh he was crossing over And searching for characters very deliberately who were either in moral gray areas or were bad people. And again, that's another thing that comes out in this film. So he was looking for more complicated acting work. But also, uh, he financed this movie. So he would, today we would call him the executive producer of the Vikings. He put up most of the money for it. And it was run through his newly opened production house, Bryna Productions. So he had kind of said that uh, making a movie about Vikings was sort of his dream. And, you know, like, he gets to do this complicated acting work. He gets to make a movie about Vikings at a time where there are no period pieces about Vikings. It's all about knights or biblical stories or stories about Rome and Egypt. Or it's about, you know, the 1800s. That's it for period pieces. So he gets to make this movie about the Vikings. And then on top of that, he gets to go from being this anti-hero character who is a real genuine schmuck to being the hero of the film. So he gets to kind of maintain this Kirk Douglas brand throughout. Yeah, I, I did not know that. There's also some, speaking of like the historical aspect of this, I remember reading somewhere that there's a lot to do with one of his other major roles, Spartacus, yes. with this film. His mm-hmm. relationship with Tony Curtis and that, and how this film plays out, also directly affected like how, how the casting in Spartacus went. And um, if I remember correctly, and th- this may be wrong here, I only read this in passing, but if I remember correctly, and 
again, I think the source is IMDb, so... <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah, take it with a grain of salt, but I remember reading there um, that he and... Uh, that he First of all, that he had agreed to this film because he wanted to play Viking on screen. That had always been one of his big thing, like, something that he had always wanted to do. And that also, uh, he agreed to a... Spoiler alert. Uh, spoilers? Okay? With that? Okay. Yeah, no, spoilers are cool. We spoil the shit out of everything every okay. fucking time. Also, cursing is good. Got it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been holding back? No, I'm no, so it's sorry. all good. Um, uh, let's just say I grew up in a very blue-collar family, so I, I can curse like a sailor. Which also is why I picked this movie, but that's a different story for another time. Um, one of the things that was, was that he agreed with Tony Curtis to allow Tony Curtis to kill him in this movie. Uh, if you could kill Tony Curtis and Spartacus. I think... Yeah. A little bit yeah, of tit for tat. I think that's, that might be right. I think so. He also I, had And a, that's also from IMDb, so take it with a grain of salt, folks. Yeah, that, that could be folklore, but keep in mind, Kirk Douglas had... Uh, he had a lot of um, sway in terms of the choice of writers, so I'm sure he could have influenced a decision like yeah. that. And it's also interesting that... As you said, he's kind of like the uh, the first real like beefcake action star, and then he cho- goes and chooses this yeah. role where he's the bad guy. And it's yeah, no, I I actually that's one of the big things that I wrote in my notes here is that it's a really interesting idea that he he's kind of known for being a, like the romantic lead in many films as well, and I feel like him kind of ter- that introduction serves to really jar the viewer and say hey. This is not going to be who you expect it to be right off the bat. It's really interesting if you watch the uh, trailer, too. Um, I know, uh, Doc, you had said that you hadn't actually watched the trailer. But if you have, there's they make a very big point of that. Of, like, Vikings are all about taking what they want. About everything coming by force. And that's a really... That's something that um, I really found jarring watching it as... I had actually never seen the trailer before I went into this movie, watching this movie again. And thank you, Amazon, for having the trailer on there, by the way. That helped actually a lot. And it really highlighted something to me that, um, you know, I thought was, it really kind of, I don't know how, how to phrase what it did, but it pulled me out for a moment, I guess would be the best way. It just said, whoa, Steve, Really? Really, this is how they're marketing this. This would never fly today. It wouldn't. And I mean, it's a very old school advertisement. You know, it's yeah. kind of like the whole, you should see this, blah, blah, blah. But I think the way that it's advertised just really is kind of like a a dime novel, like a dime adventure novel. And yeah. I will say that I think the screenwriting in this film is particularly good for films during this period. Like, as I mentioned before... This is a movie that's made during the time of the Hollywood blacklist. So a lot of screenwriters are being accused of being communists. And then they are writing lots and lots of screenplays because if you've been blacklisted, people can't list you. So you get paid much less money for your screenplays. Um, I took a look at who the writers were on this. Uh, Calder Willingham was not a blacklisted writer, but from some of the sources that I looked at, it seems like Dale Wasserman might have been at one point. 
Um, and not to say that that necessarily influences the quality of the script, but I do have to say that I think this is a better written action movie than a lot of the other action movies coming out of this period. And it's also significant that it's shot on location in Norway. Yes. That's kind of unusual. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, one of the things that I really enjoyed about watching this film is it harkens back to a different kind of epic. You know, this is like some Ten Commandments yeah. era kind of grand-ass Hollywood yeah, bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. And oh, yeah. <laughs> as much, as, as tragic as it is, I really do love looking back at the days when Spectacle was spending a bunch of money building these really big sets and then killing actors. So, also all the extras, interestingly enough, uh, locals. Or so I was, I've read as well. By the way, to go back to yeah, the script, you can kind of get that vibe. Um, by the way, to go back to the Sorry. screenwriting real quick, uh, were you aware this is actually based off of a book? Yeah. Uh, I was the second I tried to look up the last writer who's not at the top of the <laughs> Yes, it is uh, Edison Marshall. I wasn't even aware of it the first time I watched it. And I did a little digging, and maybe that led to some of the, uh, the quality of the screenwriting because yeah. it is an adaptation. I wonder if that might have something to do with it as well. Okay. What kind of book yeah. was this? Well, well, maybe one day we'll read the book and come back <laughs> yeah, to it. Maybe. But um, one thing I wanted to say is, um, yeah, I got I got that vibe that a lot of the extras were yeah. locals, um, just from that one guy at the kind of morning uh, hall yeah. scene, <laughs> because everyone else was like Ragnar, Ragnar. Oh, so you want to, you don't want to revenge for Ragnar? <laughs> <laughs> just that one yeah. guy. Just that mm-hmm. one guy. Yeah. And and that's uh, can stuff we talk that about we, like. Um, this is we, stuff that we tend to take for granted in modern movies. A lot of contemporary action movies and adventure movies are shot either on location or in a specific epic location. This was not common for the 1950s at all. This was the beginning of blockbuster films, and that's part of what makes filming this on location significant. I'm trying to remember here, what year is Lawrence of Arabia? So that's another one that's infamous for... That's another, well, not infamous, that's famous for being shot on location. Lawrence of the Arabia, Lawrence of Arabia is 1960. Yeah, so it's around this time, too. And, because that, to me, that's, yeah, that's one of my all-time favorites. Um, I'm kind of, uh, I, I actually, when I, one of my previous jobs, I had a lot of time to read audiobooks. I used to read a lot about, to listen to audiobooks a lot about T.E. Lawrence and all that. It's a very uh, that movie yeah. is the with the shoot being shot on location. It's a very interesting movie for that, but um I really like the location in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's very awesome. pretty. Um and yeah. Now Annie, correct me oh, if I'm boy. wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but what the the Wikipedia <laughs> article for reception was very okay. sparse. Uh, but one thing it did stress is that this was, like, the second highest grossing movie of the decade. Uh, which I... Pr- yeah, so Sorry? it actually was. Uh, just for context, this cost about $5 million to make, which I know sounds pretty low for us today, but that would be about, like, $50 to $100 back then. And uh, Spartacus, which was a far higher grossing film, cost about $12 million to make. And both of them made back their budget and more. So what were you wondering about that? Yes. Yes. Well, what I was specifically saying, though, is that this is five years before Lawrence Mm -hmm. of Arabia. So 
I think looking at the trend of Hollywood, and I don't think it's too far to say that may, uh, studio executives didn't think in, along the same lines that they do today, that we can't predict some of that behavior. But I think without the success, this movie being very successful as it is, I don't think we get Lawrence of Arabia. I totally have to agree with that. Um, and I think that this is also another reason why it's significant that you have an actor branching out, using his studio connections to create uh, Bryna as a company. Uh, this was an intentional effort on Douglas's part to see what else could be done, and he wanted to have his own production house where he could make the movies that he wanted to make and to make action movies that were really compelling and also kind of a little bit grittier than some of the stuff like, say, your typical sword and sandals or biblical movie. So there's a lot of experimentation going on during this period that leads us up to not just the contemporary action films we have today, but a lot of the really important classic adventure movies that you see coming around the late 1960s. Yeah. Huh. Also, fun fact, Kirk Douglas is still yes, kicking he is. as of He's time of recording. He's 101 years old. <laughs> God right? That is very impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also what comes up from his little Google um, biography here, uh, apparently he's a veteran, 1941 to 1944. He was in the Navy, I believe, um, if I remember. That's a pretty common theme thing in Hollywood, too. Yeah, I think time. James Garner was as well. Yeah, especially, the, yeah, that, that is fair. So this, this would be a, because that, that was one thing that I was kind of curious to place this in, because the way cultural discourse has mm-hmm. gone in the last decade is this was a movie by the greatest generation for the boomers essentially well for the greatest generation no, is boomer, I, but like this is a childhood movie I for actually the like I totally agree with that yeah, yeah that's exactly their target audience they're targeting young boys in the boomer generation and then men who've come home from war who are in the labor market now like I think that's part of the deal with the extreme masculinist politic of the film itself. Like, it's really meant to boost up those ideas for both the younger generation and the old. Yeah, because that that is one thing I found that I really liked and also kind of hated how much I liked about yeah. this film. Um, beca- because, um, how do I say this? One, that was another aspect of uh, Kirk Douglas's performance that I actually really liked is there's this wonderful, playful, performative masculinity yeah. that he does. Yeah. This kind, Like, he starts off the kind of, oh, he's the pretty one, you know, oh, scar your face, whatever. But in the drinking hall with all the rowdiness yeah. and so on, he's having a fucking blast. Oh, and yeah. one of my favorite scenes in this uh-huh. whole movie, one of my favorite scenes in this whole movie is when they run the oars. Oh, that when is they a run the oars, There is a... Yeah. There is such a sense of playful camaraderie. Yeah in that scene and initially i didn't know what i was looking at because i saw the boat in the water and i saw people running alongside it and i thought that they were in such low water that people were like running alongside the boat and jumping oh, over have you the never oars. heard of oar stepping before okay no i have never not before okay. i saw this film so like there is a sense and like there's some there's some very toxic yeah. shit in there like you know ragnar's like ah if you want to rape that girl oh, go no. ahead He's and a rape toxic her. give her to like, you that's just yeah no the but within that context, uh, despite all the horrible shit they do, there's a genuine sense of warmth and smiling yeah. there 
that I think really permeates the filmmaking in those scenes. Oh. And that and that absolutely I think colors the kind of tragedy over the, of the overall script is, you know, basically everyone dies. Yeah. Um by the way, we talked about the boat and that's one of the biggest things that why uh, this movie sticks in my mind. I got to talk about the boat. I'm sorry guys. Yeah, I no, really do it. About okay. Go okay, I'm it. about to go spout off here for about five minutes and just go crazy. So, warning. I'll go grab a beer. <laughs> okay, so first of all, I love that boat. That boat on the fjords is amazing, and I love the shots of it sailing up, and I love the fact that the sail is pointing in the exact wrong direction for the direction it's traveling. Because at this time, boats are propelled by going dead downwind, and the sail blows out dead downwind. We don't use the same... Uh, the physics behind sailing at that time is not really what it is today, where you imagine the sail blowing out to the side, people going one way, sail blowing out another way. No, this is dead downwind. These are square, like the old square rigger ships, the tall ships of the day, of like the 1800s. You go dead downwind. This, <laughs> I love the fact that the boat is traveling perpendicular to where the sail is blowing in so many shots. Or when they're rowing the boat, when they've got the oars out and they're rowing, that they're dipping the oars into the water. And they're, like, not moving in a circular motion to try and drag the water. Which is what you'd basically do with an oar. So, I love that fact. Also, as somebody who grew up, basically, around boats, very early on around sailing, it's one of those things that I just love. I love the nauticality of this how tied to the sea it is this entire movie like a lot of the major action cannot ha and the major story points cannot happen without the ocean i really love that and it's it's another thing that helped connect me with my dad and it's another thing that when i called him today we started talking about the boat and i'm pretty sure you can see that it should not be making that much wake I'm pretty sure that it that they probably had in it had a motor on the back somewhere. They definitely did, <laughs> uh, because no one could row the boat. Because unfortunately, when you research things and try and make them very very historically accurate, what you don't often yeah. take into account is that the guys who are rowing the boat now are way bigger than the guys who would have been rowing the boat then. Yeah. So no one could do anything while they were on the boats, <laughs> and that's why you notice those things. Speaking of the sea, what did you think of the uh, tidal pool? Uh, I'll tell you what I thought of the tidal <laughs> pool. My first thought was Google history of tidal theory. <laughs> 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 because there was a real emphasis on the winds moving the tide. And I, I was just really curious because when it comes to a lot of these things, a lot of kind of models of the world... In Western society, at least, we tend to kind of accept this really horseshit yeah. myth that people didn't have any idea what the fuck they were doing until, like, 1825 yeah, which or something. Is just dumb. And it's like, you know, and the history of tidal theory is more complicated <laughs> yes. than that. I, I The Wikipedia article is surprisingly yeah. long. But um, I, I'm fairly... And also... We, when we look at these collections of knowledge, we tend to only have them from, you know, this Anglosphere-centric yeah. thing. And maybe there'll be a notation that this was discovered in Italy in this year and then spread to the rest of the Western world in this year. 
But different cultures knew different yeah. things at different times. We have some very advanced sailing cultures, like yeah. the Polynesians, oh, yeah. for example. Um, and so, like, first of all, the, the idea of the, it's a cool scene. The tide pool is. is a cool scene with crabs. Oh, but I, love the crabs. I <laughs> yeah, but um, it kind of put me in this place to kind of question the historicality. Yeah. Is that even a word of oh, a lot sure. of things? Um, because I'm pretty sure that the Vikings had pretty good navigation. They did have quite good navigation yes. as they were a seafaring people. So I, I think maybe one of the questions there is why is this movie positioning them oftentimes as savage? Like I think that word is literally used a couple yes. times in the film. Why do they seem to not have this knowledge? And also, um, why is there such a huge emphasis on them committing acts of violence? Like, a lot of historians today would tell you this is not actually how Norse society works. So what is this movie doing with those things? Okay, there's a couple things. Um, One of the things that it does is it... This has a lot of DNA in common, actually, with a lot of sword and sandal kind of films. Um, Particularly... Like, I I do feel like there is some connection to, like, Jason and the Argonauts and other, like, Greek epics. And what that is, is it's kind of, like, a muted version of that because um, the compass, the lodestone, is like a magic talisman. And it's weird because it's mentioned and it's set up, but it's not really emphasized after just a brief scene. Because, like, one thing I was kind of expecting is that, you know, he would guide them in the boats and he would have to hide the lodestone and hide how he's doing it so that he continues to be useful to them. But the scene just kind of... Is he's just, not he's even the like, one yeah, using no. it, if you yeah, notice. He, he d- he's not actually the person with the yeah. with the compass at all. It's uh, the other... I, it's the slave. It's the other slave. He's in the back of the boat guiding them. Which... Sandpiper, yeah, played by Edric Connor. Sandpiper, that's it. I can never remember his name. Unfortunately, he does not get... Much of a screen. I was try- I was thinking sandalwood, so I had to check. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's rather un under you know used, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that they tell us early on is that Sandpiper's tongue was cut off and his yeah. ears were cut off as well. So this is somebody who's been very badly damaged. Which, unfortunately, we know historically that this was a practice that people used. Yeah. Yeah, it it is definitely something. I I also found speaking on that. I also found interesting um, the, and I'm sure we're gonna get to this later. The role of women in this movie. I was uh, literally about to bring that up. So um, before we go anywhere with this, um, Annie, I want to ask you um, your thoughts on Janet Leigh as Morgana. <laughs> oh God. I'm sorry that that bugged me the whole movie. It's like, it's it's Morgana. It's it's like. <laughs> So Janet Lee was kind of this very young uh, actress in Hollywood who would often get cast in these damsel in distress roles. Um, she was usually positioned there as a body. She is a busty woman with a tiny yes. waist, so she is the ideal 1950s woman. She's also this little princess who's getting fought over all the time. Um, and unfortunately, this is something that was replicated throughout her career, and studios almost constantly positioned her as the put-upon woman, um, as the sort of frail woman. 
her acting skills were, um, I don't know, kind of mediocre, but I also don't feel like she was ever particularly given a chance to really flex her muscle, at least until later in her career. So, yeah, she ends up in this really, uh, this role for her is just atrocious. It is. <laughs> it's a really bad role. But I, I actually found it to be the less, the least interesting female role in the movie. Yeah. The the yeah. runecaster, uh, yeah. whatever we would call her, she is a much more interesting depiction of a woman. Katala is amazing. This. Yeah. yeah. I love Katala. Yeah. She is yeah. really, really good in this, and I, I think it's something that normally you see a lot of this harping on the attitude, as it should be. But I think I I think there's something in there that's a little more interesting with that character um, than we might expect from that time period. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I got the sense that she's a woman who she she's not beautiful. She really isn't. You could you could say that, and she doesn't use that. She uses her mind to uh, solve problems a lot more. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah. That's very um, true. She's also I, portraying a very specific type of character that we find in 50s movies as well, which is the un... Uh, we'll say the unwomaned woman. Um, she is asexual or depicted as having no sexual interests. Um, she is a plot device. And also she is portrayed as being not attractive and that, um, unfortunately, due to the mores of the day, that enables her to have more agency within the plot in terms of having a speaking role or articulating things that are going on in the story. Yeah. So there's there's push and pull that's going on in this movie in terms of roles for women. Yeah. Um, regarding uh, Kitala, one other thing uh, I actually really like about it is half her power seems to be magical and, you know, prescience and foresight and stuff. But also, I think her strength comes not just from that, but her ability to socially manipulate that. Um, in particular, like, she sees the prophecy about Eric or whatever, and that's one thing. But to put it in the terms that will most frighten people off trying to harm him, that is something that I feel like, at least in my reading of the film, feels like a deliberate uh, choice of hers. And a, a, a it, careful it definitely wording. is because that came through to me as well, and I, and that's what I kind of wanted to bring up was the fact that she does as, I and to be clear, I wouldn't say she's ugly in any sense. I I think she's she is that de- you are definitely right to point out that she is definitely stripped of any sexuality really, especially given the clothes she's wearing and the way that and how she appears, the scenes in which she does. There, there seems to that is definitely true. But it is nice to see a woman in one a movie from the like a sword and sandal kind of movie in this period who is using their mind and um, being manip- manipulating and having a good sense of agency. Because a lot of my experiences with this genre, at least personally, um, is more of the other of our other type of female example in this film yeah so yeah so i want to go back to janet lee for a minute um just because i had some thoughts on the role as well and that i don't like her place in the story i don't like what you know where she's positioned and but within that context 
generally speaking, this it this is a very poetic yeah. film, uh, particularly when you look at the romance scene between yeah. her and Eric. It's very much you know the star-crossed lovers kind of thing, and in a lot of ways, I really hate that kind of shit. Yeah, a lot of the time, I really hate that kind of shit. But I kind of liked her in this, uh, for a couple of reasons. But one of the central defining roles of her character is to resist, is to kind of, you know, she's a spitfire, I think is the word you'd want yeah. to use. And there, her, I like her defiance. It's not the most nuanced thing, but I like the, but I, I, I like that there is that at all. That she's not completely helpless. And the fact that she's always threatening suicide as, like, this ultimate final defiance is maybe a bit problematic, but, like, it's very compelling. Yes. And I think it also suggests uh, an awareness of uh, the fact that her body is regarded as valuable property, too. Which, I mean, like, yes. Morgana's not exactly stupid. <laughs> she's no. not. So. Uh, she no, especially that. the um, moment when the... she... Re- in effect, resist by not resisting. That moment yeah. there is... That's an interesting moment. Yeah. Um, and one last thing is... Going back to the romance scene with Eric. Um, ge- like like I said, generally I don't like this kind of stuff. But something about this scene... And I can't quite put my finger on it, but it just kind of worked for me. Um, I think part of it is because of the dynamic where she doth protest too much because it's about you know, impurity and, like, uh, multiculturalism to a degree, is you are from your world, I am from mine, we don't belong together. And, like, in a way, what Eric is doing is really kind of almost creepy coercive where it's like, uh, no, you don't really mean that. And I, 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 I hate that, but, like, they play it well enough that it just kind of, that melts away a bit in the moment. Like, thinking back on it, I'm like, that's really gross. But in the moment, I'm just seeing, like, the way they're intertwined. Like, you know, um, the greatest ocean is between a heathen, between a Viking and a, a Christian and a heathen or whatever. And it's like, if our hands can reach across that ocean, it can't be that hard. Like, it's it's corny, sappy shit, but it's played straight and, like, really well, I guess. It's a credit to the acting, I think, more than the writing or, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, you have some good actors in this film and actresses in this film, and I think that that's more credit to them than anything else. Yeah, and also let's remember that Tony Curtis and Janet Lee were married, yeah. so... <laughs> yeah, yes, so, oh, were like, they? the public would also have known that, so that's also context for them that they would walk into the theater with, because this was... Like, people knew that they were dating, okay, see, they got married, and everything. Because my, <laughs> my next thing was going to be, like, like what, what is, like, you know, this ethereal thing we call chemistry? I guess we fucking know now. Uh, well, yeah. I think it's just hilarious that we stumbled onto that. Because I do agree, like, they have this amazing chemistry in that scene, which... That scene, the content of the script itself is very disturbing in terms of what he is yeah. being asked to do. But yeah. the performances make it work somehow despite it still having that problem i actually i love that part of the script for a very specific kind of extra textual reason is that is i think a slice of script that would be a great piece to use for dramatic practices and exploration because you could use the exact lines and the exact uh, stage directions and imply very different emotions and very different emotional contexts for it is like you could make that so threatening is like you know no there is the greatest ocean the widest ocean in the world is between a heathen and a christian 
well, if our hands can reach across it, can't be that far. Like, see, see, like the script is, the script does not, I, I don't have the shooting script in front of me. I don't have the pre-shooting script in front of me, but from how I am, I have to reverse engineer how it would look. Yeah. I don't think the emotional tone of the scene is really set in the actions or in the speech. It's purely in the direction and in the actor's choices. And so in that, that scene is well done. And I think it's kind of fascinating in that it has so much potential to be gross as and shit. I think, I, I think with, uh, as when you go back and look at a lot of, at a lot of the great romantic uh, scenes in a lot of the movies from this era, I think you'll find a lot of that to be the case too. A ton of coercion, a ton of yeah. she's resisting constantly because this is something that women are because of the way that gender roles worked in the early 20th century, there's a consistent expectation that women would refuse sex to the nth degree. They would fight it to whatever. Um, and so that becomes a real part of cinema history in terms yeah. of looking at American films from this period. I mean, yeah, this is a conversation that I think disturbing. is still to a degree happening today and in really weird places. Um, yeah. Because in particular... I remember, I think it was last year or the year before, there was a big controversy about, um, it's cold outside? Maybe it's cold outside? And, um, like, and I think part of this also kind of factors into this idea of what I think is, I, I'd like to call cultural buy-in, is if you accept certain premises, certain things are okay. But if you accept new premises, sometimes these things become not okay. Because Baby It's Cold Outside, I think, was originally sold as, like, this kind of lovey-dovey, cute Christmassy song. And then, like, the, there was this huge conversation about, like, actually, this is really rapey. This is not cool. Yes, exactly. I agree yeah. completely. Yeah, and I mean, I think, too, like, for this period, <laughs> you know, if this was today, Tony Curtis would definitely also be up there as somebody, you know, on the, I don't know, being accused by people, certainly. Like, Tony Curtis was somebody who didn't engage in some great behavior. So, yeah. like... I cannot wait for the Tony Curtis, uh, fucking Henry Cavill. I uh, guess I'm just not gaining anyone. Sweetie. No Henry Cavill. Cause he's he's he, he, he's that he's that brunette with the good beard and the steely blue eyes. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. That's just that, that's a, that's a shitty association. But like, I couldn't help it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, let's talk about Tony Curtis for a moment, um, because yes. I feel like he's compelling in this film, but I also feel like he doesn't do much. No, he really doesn't. It's very interesting. Um, I think, really, the biggest thing that you can talk about Tony Curtis with is his relationship with uh, Einar. Uh, with, uh, with Eric's relationship with Einar. I think that's a really driving aspect of what they do to each other and where they wind yeah. up. I mean, for what he does, I think... First of all, I, I think we have to separate uh, Tony Curtis's... Uh, performance from Eric's character for a moment. And I think Tony Curtis performs very well. He has that kind of smoldering, steely gaze, and he he, he does it. I can see yeah. why he was cast for this role. Um, and I can see yes. why he was a heartthrob. Um, but there's a couple things, and I think it's kind of, it, like, competent. I think maybe it's a little bit two-dimensional. Like, he's very, you know, mm, I'm serious. Like, he, he, he's a heroic archetype in this kind of mythical film. So there's not really room for a lot of nuance. I do think a special exception goes out to his romance. You know, played with his wife, a lot of great chemistry, really nice scene with some problematics to it, as we discussed. But for the rest of the film, he's very. But one thing I do like is he's allowed to be. Oh yeah. 
Um, because one thing that kind of came out of left field is where they chop off his hand. I was not expecting to, for our protagonist, because it's weird to call him a main character, because I feel like he is, he is our protagonist, but he is not our... Oh, yeah. No. Um, so to expect our protagonist, quote-unquote, to yeah. like, experience that kind of disfigurement and sacrifice of losing a hand and to have that stay was very surprising to me. The other thing also is that it stayed a stump. When something like that happens, my first thought is like, oh, oh he's, he's going to come back as, you know, um, Eric Hook Hand or Eric the Iron Hand or something like that, you know? Especially because the Kirk Douglas is, like, Im- almost immediately granted a new name. You know, he becomes Einar One-Eye. So comparing that, and that's also a mirror between them is they both lose something and they both become defined by it to a certain degree. But because Einar is titled and he is nobility and, you know, he is a leader, he immediately is given, like, a title and he processes that. Whereas... For Tony Curtis as Eric, it's just never really remarked upon. Yeah. You touched on the uh, loss, and I, I think that's a really good way to look at the two characters. And I think the what they lose speaks a lot to the characters as well. Um, we see a lot of, like... Uh, I wanted to... Uh, I, I think a really big theme in this is blindness. And the loss of the eye. I think that's a... That's something that you can't talk about this movie without. And I think also the loss of the hand. Because I noticed something that may be me reading too much into this. It probably is. But I noticed that uh, Ragn- that uh, Einar losing the eye is very symptomatic of somebody who loses a part of his own sight to rage. As he does so often. And then um, it's no- interesting that uh, Tony, Curtis, uh, Eric's char- Tony Curtis's character, Eric, loses a hand. Something that one would use to hold a sword. And he's, uh, the way they two interact and how they two, those two kind of interact, whereas one gives into his rage and one gives it up. One, one is allowed to be blinded and one kind of is willing to, because the defining moment is when he, uh, we, when we talk about the death of Ragnar, you know, it, it would be very easy for that character to give in and not allow their oppressor for somebody who oppressed them for so long to die with honor. And I think that's a very defining moment and for both characters. And that, that again, that's probably just me reading yeah. too much into it. Um, so. one, th- in, one other interesting thing is there are two, there's, there's also some mythological uh, kind of parallels going on here. One of which I think is very interesting and relevant. And the other, I think which is just kind of coincidental because in Norse mythology, I can think of two particular examples. Um, Einhardt is kind of leaning on Odin imagery. Um, particularly, I, I believe, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a while since I've read, knocked up on my Norse mythology, but uh, I think yes. uh, mm-hmm. Odin sacrificed his eye for knowledge, correct? Yes. Um, so, and he becomes a leader, and we can actually, we can talk about the mythology some more in just a second, but the... Yes. Um, yes Eric loses his hand, uh, and... There's still some association which I find interesting because uh, there is a god who loses his hand, Tyr, the god of war, who loses his hand to the great wolf Fenrir, I believe. Like I said, it's been a while, and he doesn't lose his hand to wolves literally. And I don't. Uh, he also is instrumental in the war. Like I, I don't know enough to necessarily expound on this connection and if there's more to it than a superficial. But one thing that is interesting is he loses his hand to Ayella for yes. pushing Ragnar to the wolves. So there's still a tentative connection there, but that also could be coincidental. Oh, yeah. But also, I think more to your point, Doc, and your point, Steve, as well, in terms of your readings of this, 
that's not inconsistent with what's going on in the in terms of the film's production. They did two years worth of research on um, Norse construction techniques for shipbuilding, ancient myths. So like they went in and read the Poetic Edda. They did a lot of research to be able to write the script for this film. And that was also something that was really fairly atypical for films of the day, especially Sword and Sandal dramas that are just kind of like a dime a dozen during the 50s. So I, I don't think you guys are that far off. I think both of those interpretations are really pretty yeah. What I find odd, though, what I find very odd, and this is like a point I'm trying to put mm-hmm. in a succinct way, is, and we, I think we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, is what I find weird is, as a modern audience, I find it difficult to believe that this is really well-researched, even though it is. Like, I can see all the construction and the imagery and the set design and the production design is very cool and really well done. However, um, yeah. the as a modern audience, we are much more familiar with Norse mythology than I think the public at large was, and I think it's an issue of kind of cultural availability yeah. because the main thing that got me was this kind of reduction, like this simmering and reduction of Norse mythology to this kind of watered-down monotheism with Odin. Because the Norse pantheon is huge. There's this great sprawling epic tale, you know, goes from the world tree to the Ragnarok. And as a modern audience, we're really familiar with all this stuff. So, you know, we go, where's Thor? Where's Baldur? Where's Loki? Where's all this crazy shit that's going on? And none of that is present here. We also it's become spread around a little bit also as well that, you know, um, that North society was much more egalitarian and had more um, female empowerment than we like to believe historically. Yeah. Um, exactly. And like, none of that is present in this. So it's weird that there's so much research and also the research was different then. the available knowledge was different. A lot of stuff we learn more over time and things get revised and we incorporate new knowledge, but like Thor, the, you know, um, comic Thor was introduced in 1963, or sorry, 1962, four years after this movie. So I think, and it's difficult to look at, to try and find out what did your average Joe Schmo know in 1958. That's a really difficult question to ask. Um, I think though that part of what we also have to consider is that there are really pretty restrictive ideas about religion and film at this time. And again, this comes back to the context. This is a film made at the time of the blacklist. Like, there is, I just don't know how you expand out that pantheon or flesh out Norse religion in any kind of way and get that through studios and put it into a theater without that getting cut. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a draft of this script that actually did have some of that in it and they were just kind of like, shit, we're never going to get this past anyone. So we need to, like, make it more focused in certain ways on the human characters. So I I do understand that, and I think that's really important to point out, that there's a lot of research for it, but it comes out in these really weird ways in the film. But there's also some pretty heavy creative restrictions that are going on in Hollywood that's true, and that is something that we have to consider. It's just, I think, such a stark contrast, because... What I what I find to be such an interesting contrast is between this and, for example, Jason and the Argonauts, and with Greeks with Greek being you know the classics and something that was studied in schools and something that was widely distributed. I think it's more acceptable to portray a nuanced version of uh, Greek mythology than it is to portray uh, you know Norse mythology. So, and I think 
I think the Greek mythology, as you said, having been a part of the classics, would have been more widely available to audiences at that time. And than a Norse mythology would have been. Um, ta this movie, there's a lot... There's an interesting thread of religion in there, and we we touched on earlier. I feel like this movie, surprisingly, is still pretty restrained in its like in some aspects of its attitudes towards religion, as we talked about, I think, beforehand, uh, before the before we started recording with the uh, sword. Yeah. So you mentioned something about that. Can you explain what you meant? Because you said it was like the sword of Christianity. Well, if you remember at the very beginning of the movie when there are. Uh, when they're uh, crowning Ayala, they present him with the sword that I could have sworn was going to be a. When I rewatched this, started watching this movie, I could have sworn that was going to play a role in the very end, because they present the sword to the king as it's like it's the proof of the sword. It is blessed by God and all this stuff. Like it, there's a real sense of like religiousness to the sword, and. It shows up again in the climax of the film as uh, when Einar bursts through the window in like almost classic romantic hero fashion through the through the uh, through the stained glass window into the chapel to meet the da to meet the quote unquote damsel in distress, um, which is honestly I really thought that was an interesting thing to have that you're expecting it to be Tony Curtis's character and it's not you know. Like, well, in terms of the to, tropes. Uh, yeah. Well, according to Wikipedia, it is the Northumbrian Royal Sword. Um, yes. Because when you said the Sword of Christianity, I was just like, wait a second, was this an actual name sword that I didn't recognize? Not, name like, of? actual... Yes. No. When I say Sword of Christianity, I mean yes. representative of um, Christianity. And of his Christianity and royal uh, lineage. But... No. Doesn't no. use it to kill him. No, he uses the yes. simple sword... That is uh, broken by Einhar and just stabs him with it. And I think that is an interesting non-use of that because I think to play to such religious tro to to those tropes and those um, that would have probably gotten through no problem through all these restrictions uh, that would have had a very religious moment and they didn't go for it. Yes. Um, one thing that you mentioned though that I wanted to comment on is when Einhar comes through the window. Um, that is a very classic scene, yeah. but what's important though is that it is a stained glass window. It is an act of sacrilege. Yeah, and uh, yep. that is yep. how yep. he's introduced into he that has scene. To die. Yeah. Um, yeah. The... Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I didn't I even catch that. That's briefly, a, that though, is a very is, interesting. Um, point. And I, I do actually also really like this that it kind of goes on say that and it's kind of an inferred epilogue is that Eric becomes king of England and the Vikings. Um. You know, but like it's it's and it's a it's a really like I don't like this kind of device as you know it's very divine right of kings. Yeah. Oh, he's definitely at the end the king of England at the uh, well not of England of Northumbria. It's a big distinction at this time. Um, and in fact, part of Northumbria historically, I do believe, would be going to become part of Scotland. Yeah. Uh, if I remember correct, my uh, medieval history correctly, but um. What he definitely becomes king of Northumbria. That's definitely it. But I'm not so sure about the Vikings. I think the time frame is too slow. Is well, that is short. the thing is he has defeated their leader. His his um, how do I say this? His pedigree, not pedigree. What am I looking for? His lineage has been established. Um, so they have no leader. Yeah. 
Um, I actually thought he would have the kind of brass badge. Yeah. But um, Einhar ended up having that. Um, and the Vikings have conquered Northumbria. Mm. Like, they, they haven't gone on a whole series of conquests and all that, but, like, that's historical epilogue. They yeah. have taken the symbolic head of the serpent. So, in a way, like, it... it and I think in other movies, yes. I would you would definitely see, like, the coronation scene and, like, some kind of maybe, like, text scroll to say, and then the Vikings were united with the people of Northumbria and become blah, blah, blah. And the fact that while that's probably definitely going to happen... It is not stated on screen. I think is restrained yeah. in a way that makes it much more tolerable. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I didn't even. I think it. I didn't even read that far into it, and I definitely can see where that would be the case. Uh, what you're saying, where he is kind of the king of the Vikings and of Northumbria at the same time, and I. Thank you for bringing that up. That actually adds a lot more to this movie, I think. Yeah. I'm also, my other favorite thing is that he's completely ignorant of his own destiny. Because that is yes. one of the things that I really hate is the classical hero who is informed of his destiny and then just kind of goes along with it. Because one of the things it kind of grants them is this kind of, like, idiot strength almost. You know, it gives you plot armor, but by being given a divine destiny that you are conscious of... Um, it, it gives yeah. you a sense of purpose and righteousness that I find very boring. And actually a fantastic example of that is the Lego movie, because Emmett is convinced that he is the special <laughs> when he's not. Yeah. And yeah. because of that, he's given yeah. this idiot strength to just move forwards with boundless confidence, which is not earned and which gets him in fucking trouble. Like, I really like that kind of subversion on these tropes. And this is yeah. oddly, I think, also subversive that he literally gives away his birthright for yeah. love. I mean, he gets it back by the end of the film, but it's not the purpose that he's going for. He's going for love. He's going for revenge. He's like he's going for these yeah. very mortal concerns. The fact that he is royalty in both these cultures, the fact yeah. that he has the divine right of kings is not something that he is cognizant of. And thus, in a way, it can't corrupt him like it does a lot of heroes. S Speaking on, I have a question for the both of you. Do you think by the end he knows that uh, Einhar is his half-brother? Because that's not actually, from what I remember of my watching of the end, something that he's actually told. Um, I don't think he did. No, I... I, 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 I so, um, I don't think it is for two reasons. One... Um, even right there at the end, when um, when Morgana, I'm sorry, Morgana, I, I really, I, I, I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate it. Um, when Morgana it. tells Einhard <laughs> he's your brother, um, she's alone with Einhard. <laughs> first of all. Uh, secondly, yes. uh, Eric asks, why did he hesitate? Um, the other thing I think also is beyond the reasons why I think oh, it happened, yeah, there are reasons I right. think why it's important that it happened that way. And part of it is that Eric grants Einhar his honorable death. And that's not, and what that is, is not because of any kind of familial obligation. It's because that's who Eric is as a person, is he is someone who, despite yeah. being a slave, despite being destroyed and downtrodden by the system, still believes in the dignity of man and his fellow Viking, because that's what he's yeah. culturally raised as. He was stolen as a baby. So 
Um, Eric is merciful without reasons that would personally obligate him to be merciful. Yeah. And that's an important part of his character. So I do think it is important that he doesn't know that Einhard I is his brother. What? Yeah, I agree completely. I wonder, do you think he was told after the fact? Or, oh, absolutely. I don't. I think that I think there was a. a I think there's actually an unspoken moment here between um, Einhard and Morgana that not to tell him to spare him that because he kind. You notice he kind of like waves her off from telling him. Yeah, there's a certain element of that. Um, there's, I, I think it's, it's a nonverbal thing that you kind of have to really know the ending and w be watching carefully for it. I think it's there. Now, again, maybe I'm reading, uh, maybe I'm misremembering it, but I'm pretty sure there's a moment where he kind of like waves her off from telling him as he, uh, from telling Eric as. I think it is there. Yeah, and. I think that that adds something as well to both characters and how their ultimate fates. That's really interesting yeah. to me. Uh, because I, I think the, the journey of Eric is that he rises from a slave to defeat his oppressor in a certain way. Yeah. And the, the journey of the journey of Einhar is to go from being this hedonistic monster to dying with honor. And yes. while it, it does work in that, and this is, I think, extrapolating beyond the scope of the film. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of one of our things, is that there's no there's no way that he doesn't find out eventually. Maybe Morgana doesn't tell him personally, but, like, his credentials have to be established to keep the peace. That's just a thing. But, um... I just say this. I just, I think it's really interesting that he dies one of the last things he does as he dies before he goes off and dies as a Viking is spare his brother, the knowledge that he has killed his own. Brother. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. was, that was exactly what I was. I think that's a very for. interesting moment. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting moment for the character. To, and that is definitely a moment of growth for yeah. that character. And the other part of it though, is he's recognizing Eric as his equal and he has to yeah. reconcile the horrible treatment he's done to him. And, like, this is, I think, part of, I th and I think this is why this Kirk Douglas gets first billing, is Einhar is this complicated character. And this is why, like, we started with, like, you almost forget where he comes from. You almost do, because it's such a long journey. Yeah. And, that like, if you just showed me the second half of this film, he would be such a compelling hero. Yeah. If you get rid of the very, like, first half, Einhar in the first half and introduce him later on, it's a very different movie, and it's a very different character. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, he hasn't thrown any axes at women's braids. He hasn't committed any really vile acts. Oh, actually, assault. can we can yeah. we talk? I'm sorry. I have to say I really like <laughs> can that we scene. I want to talk about um, that scene because it, th there's two things about that. I think there's two dynamics that mm -hmm. happen. Uh, w in one way, I'm actually very disappointed in that scene. Yeah. Because... Um, the first thing that happens is, yeah. oh, so what if he hits her? Then she's guilty. What if he cuts off all the braids? He's like, if he misses three times, then we drown him. And I thought that uh, was... Yeah, I, I like that. That's what I love. <laughs> I, that's what makes that scene for me. Well, I love that That's moment. actually what I find so disappointing about that scene is... Really? That, that premise promises so much drama. 
And uh, you're thinking, yeah. is he going to kill his wife to save his own skin? And then Einhard jumps in and pulls him out of that dilemma. Because the dilemma is what's fascinating. I Yeah. I don't think that that was a, a serious comment. So, in my reading of that, in my viewing of that scene, I imagine that as the uh, as almost like a sense of con- of uh, humor, com- as like more of a humoristic aside of oh well, what if he misses three times? Then we drown him because well he he'd be a Viking, he wouldn't be good with an axe. So yeah, we drown him as, like as a joke. Maybe kind of thing. I don't know. We don't have anything that indicates it wasn't a joke necessarily. It's said in good humor, but these people talk about murder and raiding yeah. and raping and pillaging with good humor. It's yeah. good humor, yeah. But yeah. um, e- especially that, ca- especially yes. Ragnar. Um, however, um, because what I'm about to say next, I think doesn't apply if we accept that as a joke, right? Because one of the things is, I think it's implied yeah. that Einhar slept with that guy's wife. Ye- oh, I think we actually saw them Absolutely. together at one point. Yeah, he actually says yes. that. But um, right, I'm pretty sure Ragnar yeah. yes. it up. But one thing that I think is a kind of nuanced uh, part of Einhar is that mm-hmm. scene because he steps in yeah. to save her. Yep. And part of that is that he is a, you know, he's a womanizer, he's a megalomaniac, he's a rapist, he's a lot of things, but he's yeah. all, he sees himself as a benevolent version of those things. Exactly. Is this woman is someone he is an aggressor to, I think, in, in, yeah. in, at least implicitly. But yeah. still, he says, yeah. she shouldn't die for what I've done, so I will yeah. save her. And he gets to show off and be drunk and have fun while he's doing it. But it's still an yeah. act of weirdly, grossly tinged mercy. Yeah. I don't think that goes away, even if that's a joke, to be clear. Uh, I don't think that even if the statement, uh, if he misses three times, then we drown him, is removes that aspect to the character. Yeah, I, I, I think even if you take the Given joking the interpretation, but what I, it becomes then is he's like, oh, um, he's he's been merciful enough to grant that man his honor back. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it... That's what it becomes It takes the stakes is. down a bit. It does, but also at the same time, I feel like that's more infitting with the character as well. Uh, maybe. Like, in some ways, as if something is... Not a, it, he's not supposing to grant the man his life, but his honor. That's he. I think he can see himself at that point, especially as a character. He's not really. There's less caring about honor for him at that point as a character. Honor is not as important yeah. to him, and I think it may serve to introduce the idea that he sees honor as, um. Something that can be given and taken at will, and not, re- and something that can be trifled with, and not really yeah. that important. I mean, that is one thing. The other, the, how I, I choose to read it as there was a genuine threat, uh, because first of all, I love the drama of that, and second of all, I think where that takes me is this idea that, um, in in a way, it does make him more of a sexist pig in that he's see. Like, he is absolving this woman of her consequence. Because, like, if you see it as not the risk to the man, but as a risk to the woman, he is saying, like, you know, yeah, I sullied her honor, but she shouldn't die for that. And part of it is saving her life. Part of it is possibly also that he still wants to fuck her. Um, Yeah. I'm pretty sure... 
so yeah, I'm pretty sure that. Was yeah, still so there. I, 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 that, I, that was definitely a part of it. it, it the, so I'm in two minds about the scene because, like, I really love the drama of that setup. Is the way that is script that part of the script is actually completely brilliant. Is it's set up so at the exact moment that you learn the consequences, you realize that that man is considering splitting his own wife's head. Uh, yeah. And that's such a fantastic piece of screenwriting right there. Yeah. And then that drama is immediately removed. And so, like, in a way, I think this is just me trying to be aspirational and trying to believe in the best possible version of this film. Mm-hmm. And to say that, like, no, she was definitely going to die just there. <laughs> because I think that's also most in line with what Ragnar is. Not Sorry, not Ragnar, yeah. with uh, what Einar, Einar is. Einar, yeah. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think I I think that it I think that is definitely a possibility. I just I personally got the impression of that as being more like a the tone that the 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 circumstance and the not the circumstance I should say, but like I grew up in a very military family. I've seen that kind of camaraderie and that sense of humor. Oh, okay. Amongst people and that comradeship and that kind of like dark humor. Also, if you've read anything like the Black Co- Chronicles of Black Company, you see that. Of course, you'd bring up Glenn Cook. We were talking about Malzahn. Of course, you're going to bring up Glenn Cook. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but I do think that that's a certain. Even um, Gaunt's Ghost from the Warhammer 40K universe, you see a lot of that kind of like bantering humor almost amongst comrades. And that's how where I, my mind went with that line. Now. I think that's also part of the brilliance of that scene. Yeah. Maybe the I fact will... that it can be read in so many different I, ways. I think that either way that we read this scene, what we end up getting is a a moment of really solid character development. And I think that's really kind yeah. of... That is one of the big moments of character development in this film, is that specific scene. And one of the things that I also find fascinating about this movie is... This is a B movie from 1958, and yet we've had this yeah. really like lengthy and pretty rich discussion about an incredibly wide variety of subjects about it. Like, despite the really severe problems that you know this movie has when we look at it from a 21st century perspective, I think there is so much potential in this film, and like, I. When I watched this movie, I could really kind of see where uh, Kirk Douglas was trying to take Bryna pictures and, like, what he was trying to do. I think he was trying to establish a, sort of like a modern action movie studio that could make movies that were a little bit more developed and would have this kind of impact on audiences because that just wasn't, it kind of needed to get kickstarted in the 50s. Yeah, definitely. And I gotta say, there's some great moments in this film. I think those and those there are some really great moments like this moment that we just discussing where that really breaks the surface. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's nice in some regards to see that. Also, you just have some great scenes like or the death of Ragnar. And- yeah. And- uh, the or <laughs> yeah. walking. Oh my god, I, I love the or walking just... so much. Like that is such a fun scene, and it's just like honestly, those yeah. are the reasons why I brought this film to you guys in the first place. Yeah, 
it's those scenes that got me into it. And I feel like I thank you for being like, yes, let's watch this movie because it has really added a lot level of depth to my interpretation of this yeah. film and my analysis of this film beyond just a, oh my God, remember the scene yeah, when, they, no, uh, yeah. when Ragnar jumps to the dogs I mean, and goes, is, oh no! This is, one of my, this is one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is there is almost no such thing as an as a vapid film. There, I mean, yeah. th- there are films that are bad. There, there are films there's... that say nothing, but there are no films <laughs> yeah. that aren't made as a result of the people and the attitudes that enforce them, that uh, are, are circumstance of their yeah. creation. Um, because in many ways, this is actually a very bland movie. Uh, um, yeah. But because, despite being maybe a little bit bland, we are talking about a lot of the attitudes at the time and how they relate to the current day. And we derive interest and like discussion from it. I think if we were somehow, somehow like the three of us were like grew up in the 1950s and we were doing a film radio show review, we would not have the cultural context to have this film be as interesting as it is today. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree with that. I think I that. definitely have to agree with that. Like, Also, I mean, Annie, you wouldn't be allowed on the radio, so fuck off. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'd probably have to walk behind you two and stuff. Um, there is, there are, there is, speaking of, there is something that um, you mentioned my my bringing up of Malazan, and um, with that's something that I definitely did want to touch on here while we were talking about this film and its attitudes and cultural attitudes. Uh, that we mentioned previously, the noble savage aspect. That it's a loaded, it's a term that comes up often, and it has a heavy meaning to it and a lot of weight. And I do think it's something that needs to be talked about. In this definitely, film. definitely. Um, Annie, I want your take first want, because you're yeah. the academic in these circles, and yeah. um, this yeah. is, I think, closer to your work. I have some thoughts on this, but I wanted you to get sure. first shot on this one. Okay, so. So I want to be a little bit cautious of using the term noble savage here, uh, in particular because this is a literary, artistic, and cinematic trope about Native Americans in the United States, um, and also in uh, South America and Canada. Um, This trope centers around the idea that Native Americans lack culture, language, and the proper religion, and so they are destined to pass away, leaving no trace on the land that they once inhabited. Um, I'm not really sure that I get that from the Vikings movie. Uh, The Vikings were by no means an oppressed group, so again, I hesitate to use that term. I think what we're seeing instead is a sort of dialogue that would have been very or at least somewhat contemporary to the time, and this is the interaction between the quote-unquotes primitive and the quote-unquotes modern. So um, during the early 20th century, the idea of primitivism became extremely popular in the United States and Europe. Um, This had a lot of negative values attached to it, and it also had some positive ones, Primitive cultures were seen as lower down on the hierarchy of civilization, but also closer to nature, closer to the spiritual, and thus more in touch with the idea of like primal man. Um, This also meant that they got stereotyped as being uh, violent or so passive as to be easily stepped on. 
Um, and this was also juxtaposed with modernity, which was uh, kind of situated in Europe, and that was often portrayed as being, you know, fundamentally corrupt or hollow or too dependent on technology and so having lost its authenticity. We see both of those things played out pretty closely in the film. Um, The Vikings are portrayed as being somewhat superstitious and, you know, lacking in technology, but ultimately, you know, there are people who work the land and thus they kind of have this sort of um, real, like, common man sense to them, like they're skilled warriors and that's their positive quality. And then with uh, the people of Northumbria, we sort of get this sense that they live this hollow courtly life that's filled with all these rules and um, there's not necessarily a moral core there that's fully guiding things. So I, I think primitivism um, and modernism, like that would be a, a bit more of a close, a closer phenomenon and this film is situated within the early 20th century so it, it's not that far out to think of it as interacting with those ideas. So Annie, um, one thing that I'm actually thinking is Noble Savage I don't think is a actually the exact right term for this there are elements of that here but what i think is more apt is tropes of barbarianism in this because um noble savages are generally portrayed as having no civilization or having a much lesser form of civilization um but in particular the vikings are presented as having a quite sophisticated civilization and we are given their perspective for a lot of the movie see an englishman can be civilized that's an important line yeah. in this film. The other thing yeah. is they win. They conquer Northumbria. Um, and they have sophisticated... One thing I actually find kind of fascinating is the imagery of the war yeah. scenes because they form a phalanx. Yeah, That's a Roman tactic. Um, but in particular, that this is more... like it's, it's less noble savage and more barbarianism, but also... Like, this is a little bit more like almost Robert E. Howard, that, um, you know, the, the, the one and true king, the noble fucking, you know, <laughs> yeah. manifest authority of God character is sent away to right. grow up with the barbarians yeah. and thus merge and that, the two worlds. That's exactly what I wanted to bring up. Um, yeah. So, the other thing is also, how do I say this? I, I think the other kind of unfortunate implication is also that this becomes barbarians versus yeah. um, noble savage is because these are, you know, these are Norse Germanic peoples. These are white people. If this was a if this was a brown throng, then that would definitely be noble savage and this movie would end very differently. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think also kind of enforces the barbarian trope is I think noble savages are characterized to a certain degree by being of like this high spiritual um, awareness of being like serene and peaceful to a certain degree, whereas the bar- the Vikings are portrayed as having a very fiery heart and spirit, but also are also portrayed as being very advanced, very formidable, yeah. a legitimate threat that wins the day in the end, but they're kind of, they're shrouded in mysticism, and, you know, their god is lesser than the one true Christian god, but also, they are mystified by things like a compass or a lodestone. Yeah. Is that, part, a big part of this is that Eric is allowed to rise through the ranks partially 
through trickery of basically he is a he is um, Prometheus uh, yeah. in a degree. Is he has this little yeah. secret that lets him have advantage over all these foolish barbarians. Yeah. Whereas I think in a noble savage kind of story is the the noble savages have no chance because they have no in a way they have no intrinsic value except for what they can teach the hero. Because I think a noble savage belongs very much in a Campbellian kind of narrative where that's where that's where we meet them. Uh in a lot of places. Yeah, definitely. And oftentimes, too, what you see with uh, the noble savage trope, so you would see that in a lot of Western movies. Obviously, like, that's the most direct one. Um, and they're almost always doomed to pass away or die out because that's the biggest part of that is that their civilization is quite literally doomed to die. Um, whereas with barbarism and primitivism a lot of times it's invoking this kind of like pseudo nationalistic sentiment where it's kind of like we used to be like this but we're like this now and aren't we spectacular so yeah it's it's definitely pulling on some different imagery yeah fun fact um, that is as old as time. Uh, I believe it was Socrates who said, you damn kids writing everything down, how are you going to remember anything? You mean Socrates? I'm not sure if that was Socrates, but I think it was. Is Socrates or Plato or one of those? Socrates. Uh, come on, man. You can't break it. You can't, you can't bring up Socrates without me going to Bill and Ted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but I think that's wrap. This, uh, this has been the Movie Morgue, your movie autopsy podcast. I've been your host, Silvio Emery. You guys can find me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. And I've been Annie Neller. And as always, you all can find me on at Lights and Music at Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, follow us on Twitter at Movie Morgcast. Or is it Movie Morgue Podcast? I'll check. Um, but Steve, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Where can people find you? What do you got going on? Any stuff you want to promote or kick up? Oh, absolutely. So, um, one of the things that I'm looking to do pretty soon is I'll be releasing a podcast called Pathforge where we're playing The Rise of the Rune Lords, uh, the adventure path by Paizo Publishing using Pathfinder First Edition. And that'll be coming out hopefully at the end of August, just in time for my birthday. Whoop, whoop. If you're interested, you can find us at Pathforged Pod. That's P A T H F O R G E D P O D. And that's on Twitter, and you, or you can just find me at Steve S T E V E Dennis four hundred on Twitter. I believe that's correct. Hold on, let me verify that here for you all. <laughs> hey, this guy's a professional. He spelled uh, he spelled shit out. My own Twitter handle. You should start doing that. I used to work in a call center. <laughs> um, he knows things. Yes, and my new job involves me calling contractors all day, so spelling out addresses is important. Um, it is at Steve, S-T-E-V-E, Dennis 400. That's 400 at the end. And you can find me on Twitter there. Um, there's also links to my personal and the Pathforge Discord. The other thing that I just... It's been a pleasure to be on here with all of you. I love this. This has been some of the most fun I've had talking about movies. Yeah, this is great. We loved having you. Thank you. Thank you for coming yeah, on. Yeah, and thanks for bringing this movie oh, You're welcome. Uh, anytime you want to talk classics. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Um, you guys can find us online at moviemorg.simplecast.fm. 
one word, movie morgue. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter. Um, our Patreon has moved. It is now patreon.com slash doubledocmd. Um, so that, you know, it's covering this and some other projects that are hopefully coming out of the pipeline soon. Thank you guys so much for your support. Even if you're just listening and this is the only episode you've ever listened to, we love you and we appreciate it so much. You're all fucking <laughs> lovely and have a great time. Our intro music, as always, is Troubled by Ipso Factibus. You can find a link to their EP in the show notes. Thank you guys. Have a great time. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.